And what does God do in the Word to teach me and train me as a child or as a parent? And then, just so you know where we're headed, we'll move to the person of God. Who is God and, and what is His character? And then we will continue down from there to other things. And so these are a systematic way for you and your family to study along. There's, there's some importance for this, even if you don't have children. Or if your children are really young and you say, well, I mean, this must be for the people that have kids that are of the right age. No, this is for everybody. The beauty of this is if you'll go through this, it can be a guide and a help to you in your conversations. I see it forming a, a synergy in our church of, of people studying the Word at the same time, the same things. And as you join together to eat a meal... And you say, hey, that, that, that thing we did Tuesday about the Word of God, and he asked this question, it really struck my heart. And it can foster conversations, unifying conversations for all of us. So your children are all grown up and they're gone. Or you're single and you don't have children. Or you've got young ones at home. This is for everybody. It's not just for one group in the church. So I, I take time every week prayerfully to put these together, and I hope you're using them. Um, and uh, give me some feedback. If you, I've gotten a lot, but give me some feedback if you've got questions or don't understand something there. And the other thing before we get into the sermon that I want to say, um, I, I, I think that as we go, we, we will handle this, but I just want to say, you may wonder, uh, you heard this morning a lot about the law here and what do we think about the law and what, what is the law. I've written on it in the past and preached on it some, but you know, my understanding of how the law functions in the Christian's life, I think, has been formed most by the Word of God and second to that, the Reformers themselves. And the way the law functions in our life is, is called the third use of the law. What does that mean? The law is a tutor. Galatians 3 says the law was a tutor, a guardian, a teacher, a trainer, a pedagogue over uh, uh, those who were before Christ to bring them to the knowledge of their need of the Lord, first of all, and secondly, who God was. Thirdly, who they were. They looked at the law. and they, So they were learning all of this, and they, that brought them to a point of needing a Savior. They, they cried out for a Messiah. They cried out under the weight of the law. Because they could not keep it. Okay? But once Christ came, he said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Okay? And so once he has done that, what the law becomes to us is, in a sense, a pathway of relationship. No longer is it a thundering to do, but rather it's a, I want to be formed in his image. How can I be formed in His image? Well, we look at the law of God and we see who Christ was and who He is and how His Word speaks to us now is not as a thunder from the mountain, but as a loving Father in relationship. And so, no longer are we in fear. No longer we go to the law and tremble as much as we go to the law and see the person of Christ. And we say, that's who I need in my life. That's who I need in my heart. And so because He has fulfilled that and His Spirit is in us, we now walk according to the law of God, not under constraint, not as, as a legalist, but rather as people in relationship. And once that uh, happens in your life, once that you see the Spirit of God working that way, um, you will see tremendous freedom in your life. Freedom and joy and, and passion to pursue God. So I just want to instruct you, don't run from the law. Um, don't, Luther said, 
that is impossible for a man to be saved lest he know the law of God, know his need of a Savior, and know who his Savior is. And that's, that's kind of how I see uh, our work with the law. And I'll talk more about that in days to come as we get into Hebrews. I am going there <laughs> when I finish Proverbs. Lord willing, we'll deal more with that at that point. All right, let's look at our text for today, this morning. And um, it is the book of Proverbs. There's no one text we're going to be in today. We're going to be all over the Proverbs. As we look at the very, I think, very practical uh, issue in all of our lives, and that is wisdom concerning wealth. Wisdom concerning wealth. There are few topics in the Bible, few topics that are dealt with more than wealth. Wealth is in both the Old and New Testament a common theme. If you read the Bible any length of time, you will find this. And I think one of the reasons, you say, well, why does he talk so much about wealth? Why does God give us so many instructions about wealth? Well, Matthew 6, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6, 19 through, um, through the end of the chapter, really, verse 34, but particularly Matthew 19, uh, 6, 19 through 24, tells us why we need instruction. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where your treasure is is where your heart is. Where your heart is is where your passion is. Where your passion is is what you're trusting to save you. That's, that's a biblical idea of passion. What, this kind of passion we're speaking of is what you trust in, what you believe in. And so he says, don't lay up treasure in heaven because, I mean, lay up treasure in heaven, not on earth, because where your treasure is, there your heart is. And he exemplifies that with verse 22 where he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So you may have thought Jesus lost track and he started chasing a rabbit trail. But that's not what he did. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart is. And then his next teaching is on the eye. Spiritual eyes. And he's using physical eyes as an example. He's saying what your spiritual eyes are focused on, what the eyes of your inner man are focused on, is where you draw your light. If it is focused on Christ, the conclusion, then or God, then you will draw light. But if it's focused on other things, particularly wealth, money, possessions, how great is the darkness? The focus of the life is what Jesus is after. Jesus knows and all of us must know money is essential in this life. Wealth and prosperity are essential in this life. You cannot live in this life unless you have enough money to live, right? Jesus is not saying you can't possess anything. What Jesus is saying is where is your treasure? Or where is your focus in this life? What do you place your emphasis on in this life? And then he goes on to say, you can't serve two masters. You will either serve the one and hate the other. Man cannot serve both money and God. Your focus has to be one or the other, in other words. And that's why it's so important that the Bible deals with money. And it deals with it a lot. 
There are two um, equally evil problems when it comes to money. Two equally ways to respond, we might say, to wealth. First of all, there is the health, wealth, and prosperity idea of the gospel. It goes like this. They take passages out of context, like Malachi verse 3 that says, if you gather into God's treasure the the 10% due to His name, then He will open the gates of the treasure of heaven and will flood your life with blessing. They take that text and they marry it with texts in the New Testament like 2 Corinthians 9 where it talks about sowing seed and then God giving more seed for the sower and then they come up with a theology that says if you are giving to God, God will give to you abundantly. So, give to my ministry. And God will bless you. If you give me $100, God will give you $1,000. You've heard that. Plant a $1,000 seed, God will give you a $10,000 seed. It goes further than that. That's the surface. That's what repulses us about some teachers. It's more deceptive than that, though. The prosperity gospel goes a step further to say, if you are a child of God, then His desire for you is to be wealthy in this world. You can equate God's love for you to the possessions you have in this life. So if you're faithful, God will bless you with a lot. And if you're not faithful, you will suffer as his his child. And so it becomes one step deeper than that. The prosperity gospel finally ends by saying, you will be saved by Christ, but the only way you know you are saved is if you're blessed financially. You cannot be saved being faithful and not be financially wealthy. And so we see this and we, as Bible-believing people, we see this and it grieves our heart. It, It really strikes us, I hope, to say that is pitiful. That that's what the gospel has become is a worldly investment. Do good and God will give you a lot of money. But there's an equally evil idea also that springs forth from a lack of understanding of prosperity and wealth, I believe. And that is um, discussed in the topic of asceticism. The belief that poor is righteous. So you deny uh, that which you can touch, as Paul says in Colossians 2. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle these things. You deny everything to yourself. And you believe that by doing this, God is is glorified in you. And so you boil down the gospel to, again, an outward expression. If I'm really walking with Jesus, I I won't own anything. And they have verses that they run to. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The rich young ruler is a good text for this where he comes and Jesus says, if you would sell all that you have and give it to the poor and follow me, you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And they say, see, Jesus is saying, if you own anything, you're unrighteous. You need to give it all away. And they take what is meant to be encouragement and instruction and they beat people down, weigh people down with these verses. You could make a biblical statement or argument that God loves rich people. You could look just at Abraham and Job and Zacchaeus and you could say God loves rich people and so therefore you need to be rich. Or you could look at the Bible and say God loves poor people. 
Because if you read the story of Lazarus and the rich man, or if you read the book of James, which my Friday morning Bible study has been doing, or if you look at Luke and his, his uh, um, re- version of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, you could gather that God loves poor people and hates rich people. So which is it? Or how should we respond to the teaching of the Bible when it comes to wealth or possessions? I think Proverbs is a good place to go because it teaches general truths to us that can be applied in any age. And there's a lot that's said in, the, in Proverbs about riches or about wealth. So I want to run through ten ideas from Proverbs that we see when it comes to wealth. First of all, we see that there are extremes. There are extremes of wealth and, and, and poorness or poverty that provide temptation to us. There are extremes. Proverbs chapter 30 is where we go to see this. You're going to do a lot of flipping this morning. Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So the first thing we see is in extreme situations, both in rich and in poor, in much possession and little possession, there is the temptation to sin. We know this, don't we? How many of us have associated, rubbed shoulders with, gone to school with, maybe talked to our neighbor who is wealthy, and that arrogant attitude which they possess about them owning enough to to take care of any need, any problem, anything that arises, I got it because I've got a lot in my savings account. They value life based on dollars and cents, right? We've been around those people. And Solomon says the danger there is the denial of God. Once you reach the point where you have plenty and more left over, you don't see the need for God. But there's an equally dangerous temptation, Proverbs. This Proverbs warns us. What is that? We've all heard the the 10 o'clock news runs a special. Someone stole from a store. And what's the excuse? What is it? They couldn't feed their family. They couldn't feed their family, so they had to take that. And the Proverbs here says, don't let me get to that condition because I probably would steal, and in stealing, I would profane your name. There is two temptations. One is found in richness, and one is found in poorness, and they both center on denying God. Denying God brings the temptation. Uh, The temptation brings to us the opportunity to deny God. Second thing in the Proverbs that they say, uh, that they teach us. Just in summary, what I would say is the Proverbs teach us not to try to keep up with the Joneses. Not to try to keep up with the Joneses. That was a country and western song for you young people a long time ago. And, And it's of truth that we see what other people have and we want what they have. I see it all of the time. Our house is filled on uh, Wednesday afternoon and on, on Saturday with children from local schools that my wife tutors. And it's so sad to me. They'll come in from different schools, they're sitting at the table, and they're comparing themselves to the other kid at the table of the same age. They're looking at the Nikes, 
They're looking at the way they're wearing their clothes. They're looking at whether they have a cell phone or don't have a cell phone, whether they pull out a tablet or they pull out a laptop, and they're comparing constantly to one another. From very early, they are learning we got to keep up with everybody else. If they've got name brands, I need name brands. And if they've got, uh, they've got the latest and greatest in technology, I need the latest and greatest in technology. And it converts over to our adult lives, doesn't it? Your neighbor has a big barn and you want one bigger. I mean, that's reality. He's got a tractor and you want a tractor two sizes higher. Not because you need it, because you want to be able to ride out on it into your pasture. So he looks at it and thinks, well, i got to get a new one. And he probably will. Don't keep up with the Joneses. Proverbs 12. Proverbs 12 verse 9 says, Better to be lowly and have a servant than to play with the great man and lack bread. What does he mean? Better to be lowly and have enough than to try to keep up with the great man and go poor, to starve yourself. Consumer debt in 2007 was at an all-time high in this nation. The Great Recession hit, and the response of many for the first two or three years to that Great Recession was what? Charge more money on my debit card, or my credit card, excuse me, or take out a second mortgage on my house. Don't cut back on our spending. Get more money. Consumer debt, for that reason, continued to rise. And now, finally, because we've gone so long in a struggling economy, we see the numbers slowly inching down. Very slowly. Not fast enough, in my mind. It would blow your mind to sit down. You can do this, by the way. You can sit down and add up the federal debt, the state debt, the municipality debt, and get an estimate on consumer debt. Add those numbers together and tell me how dangerous it is to keep up with the Joneses. Because as a nation, and as states, and as cities, and as individuals, we think it more important to have the latest and greatest than to live financially responsible. The Proverbs warn about that. That that man will wake up having tried to keep up with the great man. That man will wake up impoverished. So, there is, first of all, this desire that drives us, that leads us to temptation in wealth, and it also is a temptation in poorness, and that temptation is to live as if there is no God or to deny God by our actions and our words. The second temptation in the Proverbs is to try to keep up with the guy that has more than I do. The third temptation is that rich, or the, first thing, the third thing we see is that the rich and the poor in the Proverbs are much the same. They're much more the same than they are different. Proverbs 22, verse 9 is where I see this most clearly. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed. For he shares his bread with the poor. Proverbs, 20, uh, Proverbs 22, verse 2. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. The rich and the poor live life together, and God made everybody, the Proverbs says. If we look at Proverbs 29, verse 13, we see this repeated again. 
The poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. The rich and the poor have many things in common. As much as we may think they're different, they really are at the basics of life the same. God is the God of all men, both rich and poor. That's the third thing we see in the Proverbs. Fourthly, we see that you cannot give more than God gives. Proverbs say very clearly, you can't give more than God gives. The passage, there's three passages we'll look at, but Proverbs 3 is probably my favorite. Proverbs 3, verses 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Honor the Lord with your wealth. How do we honor Him? We give. We give of the first fruits of our produce, and then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. It speaks to the goodness of God and the giving nature and the gracious nature of God. You can't outdo him. Proverbs 11, Proverbs 11, verse 24. One gives freely, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Generally speaking, the Proverbs are teaching us plainly, you cannot give more than God gives. As a matter of fact, Solomon has seen it to be a fact that those who give the most unto the Lord face or receive the, the most blessing and those who withhold from the Lord receive the, the, the worse for it. Proverbs 22, verse 9. I'm just trying to show you the principles that I see are coming directly from the Proverbs. This is not my idea of wealth. This is God's teaching. Proverbs 22, verse 9. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. That's the fourth thing we see. Fifthly, we see that poverty is not to be desired. Poverty is not to be desired. Some may desire it thinking it makes them look righteous, but the Proverbs say that's not what we should long after. Proverbs 10 verse 15 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. In Proverbs 14 verse 20, The poor are disliked even by their neighbor. But the rich man has friends. Proverbs 19, verse 4. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. Poverty is not something that the Proverbs look to as a standard and as a longing that we should have in our heart. Let's all be poor together. This is not the teaching of the Proverbs. The, six, the excuse me the uh, the fifth thing or the sixth thing that we see is that money cannot give us security. Ultimately, money will fail. Proverbs teaches us that it does not give us security. Proverbs eleven, Proverbs eleven, verse seven. When the wicked die, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes also. 
So Proverbs 11, 7 teaches us that money can't ultimately save a man from death. Proverbs 11, verse 28 says, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Proverbs 13, just a page over, verse 8. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. Unlike uh, what he may think in his mind, a rich man may become hostage because of his wealth. He may be taken advantage of because of his wealth. And so it's no security. There's no ultimate security here. The Lord, seventh, hates those who get rich unjustly. God hates those who get rich off the backs of other people, taking advantage of people. Proverbs 21 Verse 6, the getting of treasure by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. It's the snare of death or the snare of, of those who use their power to gain more riches by taking advantage of others. Proverbs 22, verse 16. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. And then, and then finally, on this point, we would say in Proverbs 22 and 23, the whole chapters actually are in view of this very principle that if you take advantage of people to gain riches, wealth in this life, God looks at that and hates it. He hates it. Verse uh, The eighth principle I see is that the Lord loves those who take care of the poor. God loves people who take care of the poor. Proverbs 14 verse 21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. And verse 31 goes further. By saying, whoever oppresses a poor man insults God. But he who is generous to the needy honors God. God loves those who care for the poor. Ninth principle I see from the book of Proverbs is that hard work and good decisions generally make a man capable of of meeting his needs. Generally speaking. Hard work and good decisions bring enough so that you're not in need. Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 11. And there's so many on this one that we won't read all of them, but I'm just going to read a couple. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. We saw it last week. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, and a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. If you spend your days in idleness, as we said last week, poverty will overtake you. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes prosperous, makes rich. Hard work helps us in this case. Proverbs 13, verse 11. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, 
But whoever gathers little by little will increase it. So, the man who works hard over the long haul amasses what's needed for this life to care for his needs. And the one who gains it all fast often loses it. We see that in our life, don't we? How many specials do we need to see of lotto winners gone wrong? Right? How many times do we need to see the star athlete sign the contract with the $27 million signing bonus who in five years is bankrupt and owes more than he could have ever hoped to make in his NFL career? I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? How many friends do we need to have who inherit large sums of money from those in their family who die and by the end of their life are on skid row? It happens all the time. And so we see that the the principle of the Scripture here and the principle of the Proverbs is that hard work and wise decisions ultimately brings me what I need to meet my needs in this life. Tenth, money is not the aim of life. As a matter of fact, the Scripture says in Proverbs that money is to be below, in our mind and in our hearts, money is to be below these things. It's to be below a desire for wisdom, according to Proverbs 8, verses 10 to 11. It's to be considered less, less important than righteousness. Proverbs uh, chapter 16, verse 8. It is to be seen as less desirable than fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord in Proverbs 15 verse 16 is counted higher than riches. It's below the trait of humility. The Proverbs sees wealth as less important than being humble, truly godly humble. Proverbs 16 verse 19. And it's to be seen below and desired less than good relationships. Money is important, but the Proverbs are clear that there are many things that rank above wealth in our chart of needs we need righteousness we need to fear the Lord we need godly relationships we need wisdom we need we need many things humility we need many things in our lives much more than we need money so money is not the aim of life it's inferior in many ways so I've just kind of run through here this is just a way to get our minds focused on the fact that Proverbs is filled with commands and teachings and truisms and life truths centered around wealth. So what can we conclude from this? What, what are we to take from this? All of these are good principles, but how do we operate in this life? How am I to operate as a believer in concerns to wealth? First of all, I think we can see that probably in our lifetime we will, we will gain more and more money. We will gain more and more wealth according to this world based on hard work and wisdom. Most of the people in here, though you may never reach the heights that you want to reach, and you will gain more. This is very uh, controversial, I know, in our day, but let me just say this. There is a reason that the Western Hemisphere, in large part, for the last 200 years, has been generally more wealthy than the nations in the East. There is a reason for that. Do you know what the reason is? 
the Western Hemisphere fell under the gospel through the power of the expansion of the church, especially after the Protestant Reformation. And so the people in the Western Hemisphere two and three hundred years ago and five hundred years ago began to lay foundation stones in the societies of the West that are still paying dividends till today. I take that as a general truth. There are godly people who will die poorer than they were born. I'm not saying in that every single specific case will be this way, but in general, if you follow the principles of the Scriptures, you will be able to meet the needs of you and your family, and you will most likely leave a heritage to your children, a prosperity to your children. This is a general truth. Both hard work and wisdom bring increased wealth. But, he can likewise say, if all that you gain in this life is wealth, you will be the biggest fool. The problem often with those who inherit wealth is that their forefathers were foolish. And so while they were off chasing wealth, their children were developing ungodly habits. And their hearts were not being set on Christ. And when the patriarch dies and passes his wealth to the next generation, they are ill-equipped spiritually to handle such a blessing. And it, they squander it. It's gone. So what I would tell you is that what we can see from the general teaching of the Proverbs is that hard work and wise decision-making will increase your wealth or your prosperity. Yes, but if that's all you're increasing in, you would be doing damage, not just to you, but to your posterity, to those who come after you, because they will learn wrong habits, and they will not be discipled in the ways of Christ, and they will be fools with the money you leave them. A generalism that we would say from these ten principles is that money is a blessing from God. But you'll be more blessed if you give it away. Money is a blessing. Those who gain money through hard work and smart decisions are being blessed by God. Okay? But why are you being blessed by God? The pattern of God's blessing on a life in the Bible from cover to cover is that you may be a blessing. I just cite one text. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. What did God tell Abraham? I'm going to bless you. Is that the end of the promise? I want to make great nations from you so that you will be a blessing to many. The only reason you are being blessed if you are sitting under the blessing of God in, pro in property, wealth, money, the only reason you're gaining that is so that you can give it away, so that you can maximize it to the glory of God. This is a generalism, but this is true, I believe. It's also wise for us to save money. I know. Some of you are smiling. Carlton Brown loves this. The younger Carlton would not have put this in the sermon manuscript because of what I'm about to say. But be aware. The more you save, the more your heart will be tempted to trust it. And not trust God. I experienced something this week. I was telling Aaron that 
that proved that even Carlton, who would tell all of his pre-marriage people, don't trust in your money. And, and if you've ever been through pre-marriage counseling with me, we spend a lot of time on finances. Collier and Lauren got the speech yesterday, okay? But this week, Friday, I got a phone call. And it turned out that I owed some money. I had had someone examining some things for me. And I had already paid a bill through the year last year. And then I, being conscientious, said I want to make sure I paid my bill correctly. And it turns out that I did, but there were some miscalculations involved. And so I owed more money. I owed as much money as I'd already paid. Do you know what my response was? I would like to stand here and tell you that when that happened, I said, well, praise the Lord. It's not mine anyway. But the reality is, my heart sunk. Why? Well, there's the natural disappointment that you think you did something right and then you're being conscientious and calling it to attention to make sure it's done right and you owe more money and, you know, you don't like owing more money. There's that reality. But the bigger reality and what I had to confess to the Lord Saturday because it took me that long to kind of regain my footing is that, God, the problem with Carlton is that money in the bank account, I wrongly believe it's mine. And it doesn't belong to me. It's yours. All of it is yours. And so, I just want to warn you that the more money that you put in a bank account or in property or in houses or in cars or in things, the more money you gain, the more wealth you gain, and the more money you save for the future, the more your heart will be tempted to treat it like it's yours and trust it as your ultimate satisfaction. I had designs for that money. I had purposes for it that I thought were better. But the reality is it wasn't mine, and I should have never treated it that way. Wealth is more desirable than poverty, but wealth is only as good as righteousness, humility, wisdom, good relationships, and the fear of the Lord. The reality is, is that we boast often in our money rather than boasting in Christ, as 1 Corinthians 1.31 tells us to do. So, throughout this time of looking at these ten principles and looking at these general statements, I have uh, withheld something very important to, from you. Two things that I want to cover here at the end. Now that we kind of have these things, and I hope you have them and you've written them down, I want to say, so what of it? What does it matter? Why should I care about this topic of wealth? Well, I believe there are some general truths, applications that I want to make. First of all, I want us all to consider our attitude towards possessions. You can ask yourself and ask your family questions like this. What are we living for? What is the aim of our life? If we lost blank, you fill in the blank, would we still love Christ? Or you could say, when outsiders look at my my life, do they see that my treasure is Christ? Seriously consider these things. 
Secondly, repent of the love of money or the desire to be poor for right, to look righteous through these things. Repent of your love of money. Scripture reading in 1 Timothy 6 and the reading that I had in Matthew 6 at the beginning tell us that our treasure is where our heart is. And if your heart is in wealth and in treasure of this earth, repent of that. And if your heart is in the treasure of I'm poor and I'm righteous because I'm poor, repent of that. Third application, cling to Christ as your treasure. Matthew 13 gives us the treasures of the kingdom principles. I just want to call your attention to a couple of them. First of all, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went, went and sold all that he had and bought it. What is your treasure? Is your treasure Christ? If not, repent and cling to Christ. Money will fail you. Christ will not. Money will lead you into temptation, sin, and rebellion. Christ will not. Money will destroy your marriage. Christ will not. Money will destroy your business. Christ will not. Money will leave you standing before God as a pauper. Christ will not. What I'm calling you to in this is to see that money is a serious issue. And these principles generally I've given you from Proverbs are good to live by. But if you do not have Christ, you have nothing. You're only waiting until the collapse. And at the collapse, it will be exposed that you have nothing. You're bankrupt. You're needy, you're miserable, you're poor. But if you have Christ, the collapse of this world comes and you stand in utter and sheer wealth and treasure. Wealth and treasure that's far beyond what this world has to offer. So, seriously consider your life. Repent of your love of money or your love of being poor to look righteous. Cling to Christ for develop a habit of seeing God as good and generous as your Father. Matthew 7. This is one that I do not do well enough. And it's why my heart sank Friday. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him of, for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? And then in the other account of that very recording, Jesus actually goes further in saying that if you ask, you will receive. If you knock, it will be open. If you seek, you will find. And what is the purpose? To have more of Him. That's the conclusion. Ask for the Holy Spirit and He will be given to you. In other words, seeking God as a Father is the purpose. Not the wealth or the lack thereof. The purpose is to see God as a good father. You know, I was uh, riding along yesterday with Lily and Hope. 
And I'd taken them to Susan's house, and we'd eaten breakfast, and Susan had spoiled them really well and, uh, and taken care of them for me while I did counseling. And then we had to go on a long errand, or as long to them. And we had to go all the way to Rainbow City, and then we drive back, and it's, I'm having to drive slow because I've got stuff in the back of the car. And they're just, we're just riding along. We're singing along to the radio, and Lily's trying to roll the window down so the wind can blow in her face, and she likes that. And we're having a good time. And they're not their typical selves, you know, typical children. They're, they're having a good day, and they're not whining about how long it's taken. They're not asking me for a lot of food, and they're not complaining because they're thirsty. Or, you know, they're just, they're, they're not today doing that. And as we're singing along and having a good time, we got to Ohatchee, and I turned on to 144 and just pulled into a service station and parked and got out and went in and got them Cheetos, and apple juice. You would have thought I took them to New Zealand. <laughs> we got back in the car, and we're riding along, and they're bebopping and eating and thanking and having a good time. And this is why I tell you that. Because I could care less about Cheetos and apple juice, but I love my kids. And that special treat thrilled their soul, and my soul was thrilled. If I, as an evil father, like to give good gifts to my children, how much more does our Heavenly Father like to give good gifts to His children? So if you have anything, it came from God. If you have a house, if you have a car, if you have a hobby, if you have physical life and ability, if you have children, if you have a wife or a husband, if you have anything, it is a gift from God. And you are to see Him as the giver of that gift and worship and praise Him. God is glorified when we glory and revel in Him as we enjoy the things He's given us. Don't make that, don't cheapen the gift by making the gift the thing that you praise. Praise Him. It can be done. Listen. I challenge you to look at the lives of those who have lived good lives with riches. I challenge you to do that. There are many great examples. Some that I, I, I look at and I'm just amazed. I think about the Truett Cathy's of the world. Who, the more they amass, the more they give away. The more good they do in the world. I think, this is beautiful. And he revels in God in the things the gifts, not the, he, he revels in the giver of the gifts, not the gifts themselves. I think of the old days, the Guinness family. The, the Guinness family had two occupations. Half of them were missionaries and half of them were beer makers. The beer makers made a bigger impact, more long-lasting impact than the missionaries. A lot of the missionaries, unfortunately, weren't real good. They came home. But their beer company funded world missions until the family sold the business much after the death of Mr. Guinness. A good chunk of the profits went to expand the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
They also built homes for their workers and vacation spots for their workers and gave them health care before that was even thought of by anyone else and fed them in a cafeteria with good, healthy food and gave them days off in relaxation. And everything they did was to the glory of God. When you read about the family, it's amazing the good they did. They single-handedly were credited by the leader of Ireland in their day for keeping Ireland afloat. Because the more they gained, the more they saw God in it and they gave it away. God is a good father. He loves to bless his children. And what he loves most is when you love the giver instead of the gift. But this also has its implication. One more implication from this fact of him as our father. And I want to stress this. is Everything we have is his. We are stewards, which means we are to administer what he has given us. We're to use it wisely. Not on ourselves only, but on his kingdom. So finally, practically put steps in place to discipline yourself as a steward of God's treasure. It's all God's. Be a good steward. Now you need your pen out. And I want to run through some things. Very practical things. Because I believe this is where our congregation, when we struggle, this is our struggle, okay? This is our struggle. So we've, we've looked at our lives, we've repented of our love of money or our love of poorness, we've clung to Christ, we've developed a habit of seeing God as our Father, and the fifth thing is we now have disciplines built into our life so that we can be good stewards, because God wants us to be good stewards. Now I want to give you some very practical things here, very practical. First of all, elevate your giving. Make the priority of your life giving. Not taking. Prioritize it. What do I mean by that? First fruits. What do I mean by that? When you get paid, make it a habit to be the first thing you do to give. Give first, not last. So often we do everything else and we come to the end of the month and say, I don't have enough. I I mean, I, I would give, but I can't. No, give first and do everything else next. That may mean that you have to sacrifice some things you like to do that are pleasure or that are not necessary, but you like them. You may have to put those aside to give, but prioritize giving. Secondly, establish an emergency fund. There's nothing worse than having a flat tire and not being able to pay for that flat tire to be fixed or put a new one on. Have money set aside for an emergency. How much is enough? Now, our young people like to have exact numbers. I've not been around them enough, so if, you're, if this hits you where you are, take it. At least $500, and at best, 3% of what you bring home every year as an emergency fund. Sitting there, ready to, it's not, let me just define emergency. Emergency is not my buddy called and wants to go out to eat. Emergency is my roof shingles are gone and I need a new roof. Emergency is I have a flat tire and I got to go to work tomorrow. That's an emergency. Okay? I can't function without this. That's what emergency funds are for. Set that money aside and forget that you have it. Don't use it for anything else, ever. Set it aside. Third, this is the discipline that we have as good stewards. Eliminate debt, credit card and consumer debt. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. How? 
Start with your smallest total on your credit card, the smallest, and pay it off. And then when you pay it off, take everything you were paying on that smallest and put it on the next one and pay it off. When it's over, take all of that and put it on the next one and the next one and the next one and however many you've got. Until they're all gone. It's called snowballing debt. Take what you've got. If you can make a $25 payment on the lowest one, over and above what they're asking for, put that $25 on it. Eat beans and rice to pay off debt. Because as long as you are in debt, you are a slave to the debt. Pay it off. Consumer debt is deadly. Next step, pay off any car debt that you have. Pay for your car debt. It's after consumer debt because consumer debt typically carries the highest interest rate. Consumer debt will choke you out. Then pay your car debt off. Now you're out of most of your debt, so you can expand your emergency fund to three to six months of your pay. Three to six months of pay. Why do we have that sitting in an account, Carlton? Because you may get hurt and miss work and not have AFLAC. Or you may get laid off. You may go in on Monday and they say, we don't need you anymore. How are you going to pay the bills? What are you going to do? If God allows you, put aside three to six months. Because you can cut the cable off and the cell phones and all the stuff you don't need and keep the power and the roof over your, parent, your kid's head and food on the table if you got three to six months and go work to get another job. Next step in we're taking here. We've made a lot of progress at this point. I do them in this order, by the way. The next step is to, to, to begin your long-term savings and investment plan. Five, start with about 5% of your yearly income in long-term savings. Notice where that fell in the chain of things we're doing. If you still have credit card debt, owe money on a car, don't have any money, liquid money in the bank, why are you putting money in retirement for when you're 65? Say, so, well, because I need to get it in there so it can gain interest. No, 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 no. Listen, when that tire goes out, that engine blows up, and you don't have any money to pay for a new car or get that one fixed, forget long-term savings. It didn't do you any good. Get an emergency fund. Pay off all your debt. Expand your fund of savings, liquid savings, and then start saving for retirement. You live in a culture that will tell you retirement is king. You live for retirement. Remember from last week's sermon? They're going to give you bad advice about retirement. I know people that can't buy bread for their children because they're putting money in retirement. That doesn't even make any sense to me. Retirement is important, but it is not God. You may not live that long. So get these other things in order and then begin to save for long term. And finally, pay off your mortgage. Own your home. Once all of those other things are done, own your home. Once you own your home, I tell, I tell people this in counseling. Once you own your home, you can do almost anything to pay the bills, the rest of the bills. If they can't come get your house, you're, you're good. Right? Now you say, Carlton, you're not usually this practical. What in the world? 
I'm very burdened for our congregation. Not, I'm not upset about it. I just, I'm burdened for you. Because I believe that this single issue is causing problems in our marriages. It's preventing us from serving God. Many of you aren't giving. Not because you're not givers, but because you're a slave to the lender. And you can't give. And so I'm being, I, I don't want to stand before the Lord one day. I got to think about this last night. When I added this point last night. Because I thought, I've told them all this philosophy and nothing about what they're to do. And that doesn't help you. I want to be a help to you. Okay? So I'm being very practical in this sermon. On purpose. Because I believe it is one of the top problems in our congregation. In our world. But in, in our people. And I don't, I, don't, I don't want to stand before the Lord one day and Him say, you never gave them any common sense help. You never said, this is a good way to live in regard to the money I entrusted to them. And they wasted it. And their marriages fell apart. And their children hurt. And they didn't give to my kingdom. Okay? So, I tell you that to say, if you've got questions, concerns, if you're in a hole that you can't see the top of the rim to get out of, come see us. Do not keep drowning in that position. Come get help. Okay? And we will do our very best. We have deacons in this church that are gifted. They, they have helped more people than you will ever know. Sit down, make out a family budget. Very hands-on, very practical. We can do that, but we can't do it if you don't tell us. So I'm, I'm calling on you, put these things in place. Not because it's the aim of your life, but when these things are in place, money becomes irrelevant and Christ rises in, in, in the eastern sky. And you say, that, that's, he's what I want. I don't even have to worry about all this. It's, it's not even a concern. He's clothing me like he does the grass of the field. He's blessing me with all I need. I don't even have to worry about all that. I can focus on Him and focus on relationships and focus on the gospel. So that's what we want. This is our, our heart's desire for all of you. Okay? So, come see us. Today, next week, anytime, we're always available. Whether it be a spiritual, I need help to cling to Christ, or whether it be practical, I need help putting these steps in place, come and see us. Let's pray. Father, as we close out this time, in your word, we confess that our hearts are often divided. And sometimes, Lord, it's because we are drowning. There are people in this congregation who are drowning in debt, drowning in regard to money. It's a burden that they carry every single day of their lives. I pray this would be a challenge to them, that they would see you and that they would see your desire as a father, that they live.